Section 30 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 The Popish Terror and the Triumph of the Court. Part 1. The English nation are a sober people. Such had been the judgment of Charles I after seven years of conflict with them, and when he foresaw his fate at their hands he would have been obliged to take back his words had he seen this same people after nearly thirty years of peace the national outbreak of hysteria which will probably ever retain the name of the popish plot but which should more properly be called the popish terror is a chapter in our history of which we can still be ashamed and assuredly it is one which all apologists for charles the second would willingly forget in the course of our narrative we have met with many incidents since the betrayal of montrose which deplorable as they have seemed have not actually placed charles outside the pale of personal honour that he should choose to trick rather than to lead his people that he should lightly accept the savage acts of oppression by which the church signalised her triumph merely to obtain money which he might pour into the women's laps that ships should rot and sailors mutiny and the country suffer one disgrace after another for the same shameful cause that clarendon should fall before the hate of the prostitute and the mimicry of the buffoon that ireland should be forced to give of her poverty to furnish the brothels of whitehall that scotland should be handed over first to the rapacity of drunken soldiers of fortune and beggared nobles and the spite of a knavish priest, and then to the ambition of a brutal favourite and the greed of his wicked wife. All these things, and many like them, have been palliated with varying degrees of failure. But we question whether there is anyone who would care to put his name to an attempt to excuse or to palliate the course of personal dishonour and shame which Charles now followed out. For the outbreak of the terror, for its possibility in a sober nation, Charles and the Anglican Church must share the blame. The resolve of the Church to rebuild herself upon the destruction of the rival temples is intelligible enough. The desire of Charles to prevent the Church from becoming his master, to redeem his promises to the Catholics, and with this object, to maintain Protestant dissent in a state of tolerable comfort, surely does not call for blame it was when the supremacy of the church was assured and when at the same time the belief had become fixed that charles was a friend of the last and impudentest attempt upon the credulity of mankind that the rancour of the one and the flippancy of the other began to prepare the way for the scenes of madness at which we are arrived charles had two courses before him he might have surrendered to the church, openly and frankly, with whatever reluctance, however strongly expressed, and thus have created a confidence which in time would have begotten indulgence at her hands to the dissenters. He might have refused her terms and taken the consequences. The first would have been painful to his self-esteem, the second would have been perilous but kingly, and we believe successful he chose instead a course which united and by union doubled 
the evils of both. But by dint of extreme baseness, he secured that the calamity should fall solely upon those whom he betrayed. He was like an unskillful driver, who first jerks the reins of a spirited horse to check him, and again lets him take his own pace, until rendered nervous by this alternate caprice, the beast is ready to shy and plunge and stretch into a mad gallop at the sight of a figure by the roadside or a waving bush. By surrender to Parliament during the session, an evasion of his surrender during recess, by acceding to savage laws against the Catholics while he welcomed them at Whitehall and gave them commissions in his regiments, by his alternate alliances first with the Protestant Republic against the aggressions of Catholic France and then with France against the Republic, by his popish mistresses, his popish queen, his popish heir, himself nominally Protestant king of a Protestant country, and most of all, by the atmosphere of secrecy and intrigue in which he concealed both the inception and the performance of his designs charles had wrought this sober nation into a state of nervous irritation in which they were ready to lose all self-control and all sense of proportion and fact at the sudden occurrence of any fresh cause for alarm however trivial or manifestly absurd that cause came in the autumn of 1678, when Titus Oates, the wickedest man in English history, with the one exception of Jeffreys, gave first to Sir Edmund Barry Godfrey in September, next to the Privy Council, and lastly to Parliament in October, his earliest bundle of lies. The worst and the most natural effect of the conventicle acts and the other persecuting measures of the reign had been the growth and the recognition of the infamous trade of informer, and of this pestilent brood, though he had many forerunners, and was to have many imitators and comrades, Oates was the worst. But with the story of his vileness and the progress of the terror we cannot deal here. Our concern is to see in what manner it was used by those who saw political advantage to be secured from it, and chiefly, with the conduct of Charles himself. The only tangible piece of evidence was a bundle of letters in the possession of Coleman, the Duke of York's secretary. They contained the expression of the desire of the more ardent Catholics to do a little of what Charles actually had done, to obtain French help to govern without Parliament and secure toleration, and they stated that James wished to owe the crown to the help of France, Spain, and the Pope, and then to show favor to the Catholics. For this, Coleman died, the first victim to the terror, and there are few more piteous expressions than his. When urged to make disclosures to save himself, he said that he knew there was enough already known to take away his life, and he did not know enough to save it. Apart from this, the case is not overstated by James. Such in fine was the prepossession of all ranks of people in favor of the plot, that the highest improbabilities, the absurdest contradictions, the most apparent falsities, the asseverations of dying men, the infamy and manifest perjury of the witnesses, made not the least impression in behalf of the accused either upon Parliament judge or jury. 
and sight should never be lost of this fact that among all who died from lord strafford and archbishop plunkett down to the lowliest priest or secretary not one even in the presence of immediate death or under any inducement admitted his guilt the instances from the state trials of the truth of james's words are too numerous and too familiar for quotation but the following is less likely to be known and might we feel have come straight from the hand that wrote peveril of the peak when thomas bruce landed from france at hastings the mayor with a grave countenance told him there was sad news lord is the king dead he made slight of that in comparison to what he told me that the lord castlemaine and sir g wakeman were acquitted i replied no doubt they were not guilty oh my lord replied he if they had not been guilty they never would have had their trial there is nothing to show that any leading politician was concerned in the actual inception of oates's villainy but no sooner was the game on foot and the scent hot than all looked to see how they might utilize the frenzy of the chase for their own ends danby thought he found in it a false trail which might serve to lead his adversaries off their pursuit of himself and having induced the king who would gladly have kept things quiet not to put off his usual autumn newmarket meeting he took care that the hounds should be in full cry before his return but he had miscalculated both the ability and the unscrupulousness of his enemies the earl of danby thought that he could serve himself of this plot of oats and accordingly endeavoured at it but it is plain that he had no command of the engine and instead of his sharing the popularity of nursing it he found himself so intrigued that it was like a wolf by the ears he could neither hold it nor let it go and for certain it bit him at last just as when a barbarous mastiff attacks a man he cries poor cur and is pulled down at last so the earl's favour did but give strength to the creature to worry him herein he failed first in joining to aid a design of which he did not know the bottom second in thinking that a lord treasurer that had enriched himself and his family could ever be popular that shaftesbury had an interest in fathering the plot is obvious no more convenient weapon could have been put into his hands for the destruction of danby and for getting rid of james and the catholic succession the cry of exclusion followed naturally upon that of the plot and shaftesbury soon went far ahead of danby in his parental care his exclamation let the treasurer cry never so loud against popery and think to put himself at the head of the plot i will cry a note louder rests we believe on the authority of james alone and we may give what credit we will to the statement that he was heard to say the more nonsensical the better if we cannot bring them to swallow worse nonsense than that we shall never do any good with them but the authority cannot be rejected which tells us that shaftesbury made it his business to procure the evidence of informers and to hound them on by whatever means of threats or bribery and bishop prideaux had good reason to say two years later i mightily suspect that old knave hath been guilty of many subornations in the management of the popish plot 
Charles himself complained with great scorn of the imputation of suborning witnesses. He did not wonder that the Earl of Shaftesbury, who was so guilty of those practices, should fasten them on others, and he used upon that a Scotch proverb very pleasantly, a proverb quite in the royal manner, for which Burnet's text may be consulted. It is deplorable enough that unscrupulous men like Shaftesbury and Danby should have hoped to find their account in what they knew without question to be murder. It is even sadder that men incapable of dishonour like Russell, believing that popery is and was breaking in upon us like a flood, should have lent a helping hand to the wickedness, and that, without apparently themselves investigating the truth or the untruth of the allegations, statesmen like Halifax should have allowed the possible dangers of the future to warp their minds so far from the paths of ordinary rectitude as to declare that the plot must be handled as if it were true, and that the notoriety of the fact as our lawyers have it is evidence enough of the plot. Had the rule of Charles been such as to foster honour in statesmen, such infamy could not have been. He was responsible for the possibility of the conduct of Danby and Shaftesbury, as he was responsible for the possibility of the terror. It is true that he disliked the agitation, and would gladly, as we have said, have kept it quiet. He was extremely angry when on his return from Newmarket he found what Danby had done. And when he opened Parliament on October 21st, and was forced to say something, he merely remarked, I have been informed of a design against my person by the Jesuits, of which I shall forbear any opinions, lest I may seem to say too much or too little, but will leave the matter to the law. But from that point his action can excite nothing but disgust. It is in the first place absolutely certain that he never for one moment gave credit to the evidence of Oates and his associates. Thomas Bruce, who was in his intimate confidence, says, The good king that had a penetrating judgment never believed one word of all their plot, but dissembled it, and some thinks, too much. On October 23rd he told Rearsby he did think it some artifice, and did not believe one word of the plot, and yet three days later he gave way without a word of remonstrance to the desires of the commons, which made life a burden to all Catholics. He did not even endeavour, after the fashion of the commons, to convince himself or stifle his own conscience by asseverations such as that of November 1st, when they voted that there hath been, and still is, a damnable and hellish plot, contrived and carried out by popish recusants, for the assassination and murdering of the king, and for subverting and rooting out and destroying the Protestant religion. On the contrary, on November 12th, when Rearsby was with him at the Duchess of Portsmouth's, he was very free in his discourses concerning the witnesses of the popish plot, making it clearly appear that several things which they gave in evidence were not only improbable but impossible. And on the 21st, he again said that Bedloe was a rogue and had given false evidence. Nor did time alter his opinion. On April 20th, 1681. His discourse was generally of the impossibility of such a thing as the Popish plot, and the contradictions of which it was framed. 
like Bruce himself. He regarded Oates's testimony no more than the barking of a dog, and he declared without reserve that he believed that the packet of letters produced by him in tongue had been forged. But he did not confine his opinions to his private friends. He exposed the arch-impostor unmercifully before the council. Oates had described how Don Juan had in his presence subscribed ten thousand pounds to further the assassination plot. Charles asked him what manner of man Don Juan was. A tall, lean, black man, replied Oates, whereas Charles, who, as we have seen, had been personally concerned with him in Flanders before the Restoration, knew that he was short, fat, and red-haired, and said so. An interview, Oates said, had taken place in the Jesuit college just by the Louvre. Man, said Charles, the Jesuits have not a college within a mile of the Louvre. And he laughed still more appreciatively when Lord Bellasis was named to him as destined by the conspirators to be the future commander of the Popish army, since that nobleman was crippled with gout. End of section 30